It's rare for a person to be talented both as a photographer and as a writer. The joke is, if you claim to do both, the likelihood is you do one or both badly. That's not the case with K.K. Otison, who has enjoyed a successful career as both a writer and a photographer. For the past 10 years, her interviews and photographs have appeared in the Washington Post magazine, as well as numerous other publications. In her most recent book, Activist, Portraits of Courage, she leverages her skills as an interviewer, writer, and photographer. She explores what it means to be an activist by interviewing a diverse group of people, both liberal and conservative. Some of them include Dolores Huerta, Edward Snowden, Jean Mancini, Harry Belafonte, Shepard Ferry, and Congressman John Lewis. Each chapter challenges us to reconsider what we believe an activist to be and what motivates them. I thought it would be it would be a very fulfilling project and hopefully it would be useful, it would be helpful and it would make people, you know, the, the way that I do it where I sit down and I talk with somebody in their own words and then the portraits are sort of hopefully very intimate, very close, you know, so that, and, and I didn't want to make a coffee table book either. I wanted to make a book that was beautiful, but also accessible. So you could sit down and almost feel like you're talking with that person, like you are getting a sense of them, a sense of their humanity, a sense of their beliefs, and, you know, in a way that was, that showed their dignity. KK is as fascinated with how people speak as with how they look in her photographs. She understands that both as a writer and photographer, she has to understand and respect the role she plays in sharing someone else's story. But I had my tape recorder because I couldn't write it all down and do everything in the same way. And the way that people said things, you know, the way they said the regionalism, just their voice and their stories was so wonderful that I thought, you know, I couldn't, like, how could I reduce that all to these bullet points? You know, just so being able to share those stories, so recording them and transcribing them exactly. And I was just a fiend about getting every little way that they said it and trying not to, because even when, I was like, when you're transcribing, you hear what they say. And if you go too fast, you say it the way you would say it. And so you got to back up and get it exactly the way they say it. And then it reads much more authentically. We'll talk to KK about the challenges she faced interviewing so many high-profile subjects for her book and share some of the amazing stories she heard along the way. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. Well, thanks for making time for me this afternoon. Oh, yeah. Thanks for your interest. Yeah, I like the book. Oh, thank you so much. I haven't gone through everything, but I, it's, it really is a, a, a fascinating to read. I love the photographs. Thank you. But the content really gives me so much room for thought. Yeah. It's making me sort of consider what I assume an activist is or who an activist is. Yes, I felt the same way. I was very curious about it. And then meeting the different people, you know, you sort of, I expected far more strident characters, you know, loud and very thoughtful, you know, very generous, very, you know, just, I mean, there was a real range, obviously, but so many of them defied what the stereotype is, I think. What what was your idea going in, in terms of what you thought this would, would be? And how did it change? Well, you know, I was curious. I really was in the 
the last bunch of years, you know, as things have been getting more and more, you know, the dialogue's been deteriorating, all kinds of really terrible things have been happening, you know, problems with the democracy. And it just, it's very mm-hmm. frustrating. And so trying to figure out, well, how do... How have people done it before? Like, you know, we've been through very hard times before. We've been through terrible struggles as a country, um, as a people. And so how do, what have people done before? And so I thought, well, let me just talk with people who have been through the different struggles, Mm -hmm. you know, starting way back with the early civil rights pioneers, you know, who are now in their 90s, 80s and 90s, and then all the way up to student, student activists today. And look at the idea of first, how did you do it? And what was it that called you to action? you know, how can we learn from that? And what are the different paths and the different ways to approach it and the different ways to say, hmm, these are my tools. I could use these in this way. And that's, that's the other thing that I really enjoyed talking with this group about is that, you know, there's so many different ways that you can become an activist, that you can become active, you can be useful. And so if you are, you know, like the photographer, Pete Souza, you know, I mean, he was a documentary photographer. His, he was not somebody who was ever focus on, you know, politics or telling his view of of how things should be. But he was so offended by the situation that we find ourselves in. And he just said, look, I've got this unique perspective and I need to share it. And if I don't, I can't be comfortable with myself. Yeah, it's really interesting because some of these, so many of the stories are people who have been witness or themselves have experienced some form of injustice. Yes. And there are many people like them, but it's interesting to kind of hear what was the catalyst. Right. What was the the one thing that made you make the choice right. to take some form of action? Right. And I think that that, just the idea that, and you, I heard it again and again in all different words, but the idea that you cannot be at home with yourself unless you mm-hmm. act, you know, and that just listening to who you are. And it, you know, obviously, as you said, it varies for different people, but you're in a situation where you just say, this isn't right. And I can't not do something, whatever it is, I got to do something. And another thing that was really interesting was that for so many of those people, because you have to have a sense of agency to do that, right? You've got to have a sense that if I do something, it will make a difference, right? You know, otherwise, there's no point, right? You have to have that sense that if I press this, something at least will happen. Mm -hmm. And so for so many of the people, which I thought was interesting. And again, not, nothing I had ever thought of before going into the project was that so many had been involved in something when they were younger, you know? And so 12 years yeah. old, 14 years old, often they themselves had, had seen something or done something where they wanted to make a little change and something happened and they thought, oh, okay. And so then, you know, they'll do something else. And then there they are on their journey. Yeah, that's really, really fascinating because some of the stories, the, they're people in elementary school. You know, high school yes, that, right. that took action. They may not have, have succeeded, but there was something about standing up and mm-hmm. raising their voice that was empowering mm-hmm. and maybe in some ways even intoxicating. Yeah. J- John Lewis talks about uh, when he was first arrested. Yeah. That that moment, in that moment, he felt freer than he ever had in his life. Right. And that was that was a remarkable statement, which just gave me an even greater appreciation for him and all the other people, not only in the civil rights movement, but whoever has had to, who has been oppressed in some way and finally says enough is enough. Right. And you just feel like as a human being, you are standing up 
and you're doing something about it. Mm-hmm. And that feels right. And, you know, I mean, Cecile Richards also talked about, you know, wanting to protest the war. And she was at, in seventh grade, I think it was. So she was a new kid on the school bus and she wore a black armband because that's right. what people were doing. Mm-hmm. She didn't even know kids at the school. And, she, you know, then the principal pulled her aside right away. And so, you know, of course she was scared. She was like, I was a good kid. I never did it. You know, I didn't question authority. But suddenly here someone was listening to what I said just because I wore this, you know, so that the idea that you can be heard, you know, she was talking with somebody who, oh, I guess she was talking with one of the, the young high schoolers, I think, who had walked out um, during the, the March for Our Lives rallies, you know, for the anti-gun rallies um, this past year. And she met up with a young person who said she was the only one who left her school and just how uncomfortable it is, you know, when you do something like that mm-hmm. on the one hand, you know, cause on the one hand you're like, Oh, you're comfortable that you did something finally to represent yourself and other people. But on the other hand, it's very uncomfortable. It makes other people uncomfortable. You know, we sort of tense up. We don't want people to speak out of line. And she said, but every time I've done that, you know, I've always had somebody come up and say, you know, I was thinking the same thing. And so, so you, you sort of give other people the permission or the pathway to then also stand up, yeah, which is pretty profound. One of the uh, things that Harry Belafonte said was something I've always sort of thought about myself. When I see movies where I see characters who are fighting oppression, that take arms against right. injustice, that as an audience, right. we get very excited and we just associate with the people who are fighting the good fight. Yet right. when it happens in our real world, we're often not supporting the, the very people or if we're the very people doing it ourselves, fighting, right. resisting, right. then right. all of a sudden there are these people who are against us. And Harry just made the point, he couldn't understand why, right. why they would be cheering these fictitious, you know, these fictitious people right. in film, but when he was doing himself, they were telling him to be quiet and accept things as they were. Exactly. No, I think that's exactly right. And I think that that was when I was writing the introduction and I was thinking about you know, the discomfort and, you know, how somebody chooses to do that. I guess I, I came across a statistic that when Martin Luther King Jr. was killed that year, his disapproval rating in the U.S. was 75%. Mm-hmm. Disapproval rating. You know, when you look at him now, and he's sort of almost universally considered a saint in this country, the closest it comes to it. Yeah. But yet at the time, people didn't appreciate it at all. They were uncomfortable. They didn't, you know, they didn't... And so it took, it took time, you know, and I think for so many of the individuals in here, it was really interesting talking with the older people who have seen that whole wave. So what, what Harry Belafonte stood up for and what, you know, Phyllis Lyon, who is in San Francisco and she and her partner, Del Martin, were the first same sex couple to be married in San Francisco. And they, you know, they started the first lesbian rights organization. You know, they went through all the negativity and people. And now, you know, and Billie Jean King was making this point, too. Now, if you're an athlete and you were to come out, you might get a call from the president. You know, you might literally you might get a call from the president. And, you know, she was just absolutely banned and, you know, lost all sponsorships, lost everything. And so, you know, it takes us a long time to catch up with some of those things, even if maybe we agree with them at the time. They make us uncomfortable. 
And it was interesting in the book to see that it, this is a cross-section of activists. It is not just traditional, quote-unquote, liberal activists. There are conservative activists in there. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I did appreciate about reading there, uh, reading the text about them, was several of them really spoke from really personal places as to why they chose the path that they did. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, I realize that I myself sort of shut down any sort of dialogue with things that I disagree with, largely because right. because of the rhetoric, just because it's so polarized. And right. then hearing um, hearing some of these voices, it was like I I could appreciate why they had come to that choice, even though I didn't agree with it. Yeah. And I think that this book really speaks to the idea that if we can look past all the noise, we may not necessarily change our minds, but that we can recognize the inherent humanity of the other person and not have to fall back on such sort of divisiveness, hate, vitriol. Yeah, that's exactly, I. you said it beautifully. When I was pitching the book, actually, to begin with, this was sort of I guess maybe right after the first women's march and, you know, it was a very polarized, divided time, you know, and it was sort of like, you're in this camp or you're in that camp and there's Mm -hmm. no, we're not talking to the other person, you know, you know, I wanted to include different perspectives because I thought that we need to talk to different people. Like, as you said, we don't have to agree, but we do have to recognize that where we overlap, you know, the Venn diagram is, is pretty big. And if we, if we can talk to each other, then we're going to hear the other people. Then we're going to see their humanity. And it's fine to disagree, but it's not fine to just write off people as not human. Yeah. You know, I think John Lewis, you know, said it just incredibly movingly when he was talking about, you know, he talked about, um, God, I can't, I get a little moved when I talk about this, but just a number of years ago, um, one of the people from the Klan who had beat him and left him in a pool of blood in South Carolina, came to his office mm-hmm. on Capitol Hill and said, will you forgive me? You know, so that and his son was, this guy's son was there. He was in his 70s now, you know, and they all, the son starts crying. The man starts crying. They're all hugging each other and crying. And he said, you know, that's the only way forward. Yeah. You know, that's the power of humanity. That's the power of love. You know, and he was saying, even in the nonviolent training, you know, they would say, even if you're on the ground, even if someone's kicking you, Try to look them in the eye so that they see your humanity, you know, because we can't, you can only treat someone that badly if you don't see their humanity. And so you may not agree, you may not, you know, treat them very well, but you have to treat them like a human being. And I think that that's a really important point. Yeah, and I really like what Gabby Gifford says in the book when she says that if change is ever to be hoped for, there has to be a time where we come together. Yeah. And that really sort of struck me because that's not something that I'm hearing frequently today. Yeah. And considering what she went through with the attempted assassination and and, right. and the ongoing physical challenges she she's faced since then, it is really amazing that um, in all that, that she is still both altruistic and realistic yeah. about, <laughs> about the change that she wants to affect. Yeah. No, I think that's exactly right. And she said, look, we're going to work together. We're going to figure it out. We have to. Mm -hmm. So there's no, you know, we don't have the liberty of saying just this and nothing else. We have to work together, you know. And she, you know, she said she and her husband, Mark, they've always been gun owners. So she said, I get it. And I'm not trying to say all bad. You guys, you all are bad. But we can't have this 
carnage. We cannot have, you know, young people afraid to go to school, afraid to be in school and expecting a, a school shooting. That's not the country we want. Well, tell me about the, the germ uh, for the book, because deciding to do a book is one thing. Actually mm-hmm. taking the steps to making it happen is an altogether different, different effort. I know. Uh, so, so tell me about that. I, I studied political theory when I was in college, and I have always been interested in sort of, you know, sociology and um, sort of political theory, political philosophy, and just the way that people make it work, the way people get along together, the way we try to shove ourselves forward to something a little bit better. You know, that's always sort of rumbling around in my mind. And then with everything, as I was saying earlier, that's been happening over the last chunk of years, you know, the police violence, the election of Donald Trump, you know, just the increased polarization. I really just wanted to figure out what is it? It was just, just a real curiosity. What makes people stand up? What is it that can do that? And can we learn from that? You know, and, and also for myself, I thought it would be very inspiring. I thought that, you know, if I was, I needed to find a way in this time to do something productive, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of negativity out there. I don't really want to blow up any more of that negativity. I want to see if we can find that path forward. And so I thought it would be a very fulfilling project. And hopefully it would be useful. It would be helpful. And it would make people, you know, the, the way that I do it, where I sit down and I talk with somebody in their own words, and then the portraits are sort of hopefully very intimate, very mm-hmm. close, you know, so that and, and I didn't want to make a coffee table book either. I wanted to make a book that was beautiful, but also accessible. So you could sit down and almost feel like you're talking with that person, like you are getting a sense of them, a sense of their humanity, a sense of their beliefs, and, you know, in a way that was that showed their dignity. And so for me, it was a great project to do just because it, it, it meant a lot to me. And it, it was incredibly inspiring to talk to these people. And then, you know, getting it done, as you said, is hard because you're sort of, okay, let me try to find this person. And you get online and you try to, you know, it was sort of, sort of like when you're sailing, right? There's no straight lines. You sort of attack this way and then you attack that way. And you're, you know, incredibly inefficiently moving toward a target, right? And so that's what it was. It was just sort of, you know, trying to talk to one person and the other. And, you know, once you... Once you get started on something that means a lot to you, then you just, you know, it gives you energy, right? It just yeah. makes you so excited that you, oh, this is, I got to do another one. And, you know, and the publishers literally had to say, no more, okay? No more people in this. <laughs> because it was supposed to be, it was supposed to be like 30, 35 people. And, you know, at 41, they were like, really, stop. Like, we, you need to turn this in. And we, because, and, this, and that's what's so beautiful also is that these are just, these people are incredible, you know, they're phenomenal individuals, but they are, you know, just one tiny slice, tiny slice of all the people out there doing really great stuff. And so that also, that's the most hopeful part, right? What we can do, but what we're already doing. So that was, you know, that kind of kept me going. Once I was doing it, it was sort of figuring out, I got to, I got to just figure out a way to make this happen. And so I can share these stories. Yeah. Because we often hear about activists on the news, on the news feeds, and you're, and you're usually hearing the moments of the highest conflict, mm-hmm. right? When they're doing oh, demonstrations or th- things like that. And everything sort of leading up to that or even what, what may have been initiated, it is sort of just served as a, a note within the body of the, of the, of, of the story. Right. And uh, I think that this helps to sort of flush it out 
uh, all the more. But I think one of the things that really struck me was that these people are, they're not, quote unquote, special people. Mm -hmm. They're not a unique breed of people. They are just normal human beings who made a choice. Yes. And I think the most, and and I think if there's anything that I admire about many of these people uh, in here, even some of the conservative voices, is that they were willing to sacrifice something. Right. Exactly. And I think that's probably, and the idea that kind of stuck in my mind is that uh, being comfortable is probably the biggest obstacle that most of us face in terms of taking the risk to speak out about something. Right. And yet these people, uh, whether they were in a situation that was completely uh, uncomfortable or oppressive or still had a level of comfort, mm-hmm. still made the choice to put some of those things at risk. Oh, absolutely. You know, and often, you know, even if they are in a place of comfort, then they're sacrificing their reputation mm-hmm. and the ability you know, to command what they command already. I mean, Dolores Huerta, you know, talks about it well. And she yeah. was sort of, she just, she's so funny because you know, it's not even asking her, well, what do you feel about this? You know, it was all like, let me tell you about the next thing. I want to do the next thing. Because mm-hmm. she's so focused on the work. And she just said, you know, it's leaders and activist leaders are not made. You just have to be willing to show up and to sacrifice your most precious resource, which is your time. You know, when she did this, she had 11 children and she managed to do that. So every time I don't want to go to a meeting at night or something, (laughs) I go, all right, she had 11 children. I only have two. Like we can figure this out. But she and she made the choice and she had to she chose to bring her children up in the poverty of the fields, Mm -hmm. whereas she had grown up in a middle class upbringing, had dance classes, went to movies, things that her children never had. So she made that sacrifice for herself and for her kids. You yeah. gotta be willing to do it. Well, what, what, one of the things I love about your story is that you, you know, you've made a career for yourself by getting to talk to people that a lot of people want to talk about, talk to, <laughs> and make their photograph. Yeah. And I, I was like, okay, how how did you manage to make that happen for yourself? Yeah, I mean, well, you know, it's it's always a hustle. It's always a struggle. Um, you know, I think that it is. It's great. You know, it's it's really obviously there's no job security in any of this. You you give up you give up the job security to do something that you really want, and then you just figure out. and And whenever you do things on your own, you are the one who provides the momentum, right? You just yeah. no one's going to tell you. I sort of say like I've got the worst boss, and it's me. Yes, it's like, I tell people that all the time. <laughs> right, exactly. Because yeah. you just you know you can't get away from yourself, but. It's also sometimes you just want somebody else to push that something forward and not just your own momentum all the time. So that's the part that's sort of the dreary part about it is just where you could just get tired. But then I'm sure you have the same thing. Then once you talk with somebody or make the picture and then get to go back, then it's like, woo, all that energy is back again. You know, and it's just it's just great. It's such a privilege. And just and being so eager to then share that. Is you know it's to communicate that out through the words, through the stories, through the images, and to tell their stories, you know, in a way that that does justice to them and lets other people see inside them and see what we can all be and what we can do. But I'm sure that you know when you earlier in your career when you say uh, I I write and I take pictures and I want to do both, right. uh, people are like, uh, look, just choose one or the other. Right. And okay, so you're probably not good at either. Right. Right. (laughs) No, I know. You know, I think that, you know, you sort of, 
like at the post, when I do stuff at the post, I have one editor for the writing and then I have a different editor for the photos. Mm-hmm. You know, then you can just sort of you deal with people just, you know, in, in each field. But, and you know, you probably know this since you do the interviews and you also do the photos. There, there is that sort of time as you switch between them where your mind kind of grinds and goes, okay. Because if, if you've been in the pictures for a long time, I don't know about you, but for me, the words just kind of, you know, they don't come as easily, right? Because you're just, you're just in the visual realm and you're just all focused in that. And then you've got to kind of switch gears yeah. and get into the words again. And you sort of, you know, it takes a while to, to go back and forth sometimes. But it's also great because if your mind thinks that way and wants to tell stories in those, both of those ways, then the ability to put it together at the same time, you know, it's a, it's a great economy then, right? right. Because then you can use, people aren't going to read everything they're not going to read the interview from start to finish but if you can call that and then you use the photo to show something else or something deeper then that's a really great um, puzzle you know that you get to put together to tell somebody's story as best you can with those two pieces yeah because I, I, I when i'm doing it i basically have to be two different people mm-hmm. one i have to be when i'm doing like this mm-hmm. i have to be the intent listener and asking the questions, but most importantly, listening to what's given back to me. Right. And, and then later on when I'm making the photograph, it's all about being present, but in a completely different way. Yes. Where I'm, I'm observing what the person is presenting to me and trying to elicit something completely nonverbal. Yeah. And both demand a lot of energy from me and yeah. very different skill sets. So yeah. how does this normally work for you are you doing both during the time that you have together are you separating the the portrait session from when you're interviewing them how does that work on average yeah yeah that's a great question i know when i walk in it's like um i don't know if you remember the movie mary poppins with Mm -hmm. the old um i forget his name the guy who played all the instruments and how these stuff hanging off him and he played so that's me when i walk in right (laughs) because i was like people like oh can i help you and i stagger into the room with all my stuff no no i'm fine i'm fine so i prefer and usually go in and interview the person first because I like to be able to just sit down and talk with them. And then I can also observe them, you know, see how they talk about things, see the way, the way they move, right? Mm-hmm. The way their face looks when they're saying this or that. Just, you know, it gives me ideas visually for what I want to do afterwards. And so I don't usually do the simultaneous. Sometimes I do if we're really short on time, yeah. you know, and that's sometimes you know, on the one hand, it can be good because then someone's just talking and they're just being themselves. You know, it, you know, I do a lot of photos, so it's not, you know, we toss out anything with your mouth open or some weird thing or, um, so it looks like a real moment, feels like a real moment, but, um, but you do lose some of the self-consciousness then because you're just talking with each other. Mm-hmm. But as you said, there's sort of a limit because I, I like to listen too. I like to look somebody in the face and I like to, you know, feel like we're having an exchange. And so then when you put the camera in there, you know, it's that can interrupt it. Right. And so usually I'll do that afterwards once I have a better sense of them. And it's even better, I think, if I can do it on a separate occasion, you know, if I go back or, or sometimes I'll do a little bit then and then go back and do more in depth there or in a different environment or something. And I like that because it's just another touch also. And then you get a, there's a familiarity that develops. I've received so many kind messages from people who have recently discovered the show. 
It's incredibly gratifying to hear your enthusiasm. When you say you are beginning to explore previous interviews, I'm both excited and impressed because that's hundreds of hours of free content. But I'm so glad that interviews from over a decade ago still hold their value. They still make a difference. And I'm so grateful that you have walked along that road with me and have continued to support the show in so many ways. But we can always do with your financial support because your contributions are essential to us being able to do the work that we do. So if you haven't already, please support the show by becoming a Patreon supporter. By contributing only $5 or more a month, you can help us to do the work we need to do to deliver great interviews with great photographers. Visit patreon.com forward slash thecandidframe and become a Patreon supporter today. Thank you. I imagine that w- one of the challenges is that many of these people are camera ready. And I just don't mean in terms of what they present in front of a still camera or a video camera, in terms of how they speak, in terms of what they say, uh, and basically in terms of how they you know, present them th- themselves, their ideas, their thoughts, their sentiments. Right. And you have to sort of break through right. all of that to try and get something genuine. You just don't want yeah. a repurposing of everything they've ever said or done or, or been in front of a camera. Yeah. So what what works for you in terms of being able to get past that facade? Yeah. No, it's a great question. And that's definitely something I think about a lot and especially with people who are well known. You know, and if I you know, for this book or for my other work, interviewing politicians or people who speak all the time mm-hmm. and and they have they have something that they want to share and that's been vetted and, you know, they're ready to share. And some of that's good because that's what they want to present. But as you said, it's very important to get beyond that and to get to who they really are and just the, the more personal side of them the, and then have them think on the spot and have them say something in a different way. And it's interesting because a lot of times you, you'll have somebody say, you know, I hadn't really shared that before. I hadn't thought about that before. You know, I think one of the ways that I do it, I try to do as much research as possible on somebody before I meet them. Because the more I can know about them, the more I can know about where they're coming from, first of all, what they've already said, so that that's out there and I hear it. You can kind of hear it anyway without having read it before because it sounds very, you know, tight. Mm -hmm. But also, also I think, you know, if I know particular things about somebody, if I can ask better questions, then I'm going to get better answers. So if I, you know, if I can know what what somebody did, what they wrote, what, you know, oh, in this novel, you did this, is this, you know, if I can really have read their work, their autobiography, whatever work they've done, seen their movies, you know, then I can have a much better sense and we can ask much more nuanced questions. Yeah. Where they can then, where then they have to think. They don't just respond to the same questions that they get asked to get the same answers all the time. It tends to, for me, that that works. So when did that start for you? I know for I know for me, I think that one of the things that like really sparked my interest in this idea of being able to sit sit down and ask somebody questions 
and get answers from them when I heard the recordings of Studs Terkel. Mm -hmm. And I think I was in high school when I first saw that. And I just, that just fascinated me that you could just turn on a tape recorder, start talking to people, and they would start talking with you and just sharing something. And other things happened in my life that sort of built built on that. But I'm wondering for you, can you look back and and think of a time where you felt like that that germ of what you do now was, was born? Yeah. I mean, I, I also read Studs Terkel and I also, in some of the sociology classes, like Tally's Corner, reading those books where, you know, people went in and just sat with people and listened to them and learned from them. Those were influential. But I think the time that it really sort of came together, as you're saying, was when I was doing my first book. And that was, uh, it was called Great Americans. And it was a documentary look at life across the United States. So I drove to all 50 states. So I flew to Hawaii and Alaska, but I drove to the rest and um, interviewed one person and took their photograph just to get sort of a snapshot of the country at a moment in time. And I had originally thought that it was going to be more photo driven. So there would be photo of the person and then it would be more like sociological information, like, you know, name, religion, age, you know, but I had my tape recorder because I couldn't write it all down and do everything at the same time. And the way that people said things, you know, the way they said the regionalism, just their voice and their stories was so wonderful that I thought, you know, I couldn't like, how could I reduce that all to these bullet points? Right. You know, mm-hmm. just so being able to share those stories, so recording them and transcribing them exactly. And I was just a fiend about getting every little way that they said it and trying not to, because even when, I, when you're transcribing, you hear what they say, and if you go too fast, you say it the way you would say it. <laughs> and so you've got to back up and mm-hmm. get it exactly the way they say it, and then it reads much more authentically. And then you can hear them in it. And so that was when I really just fell in love with telling the stories in people's own words and having, well, having them tell their stories, basically, and just editing them down. Um, and, yeah, so then, and then matching that with the photos was just like, wow, you know, yeah. the light went on. And what I like about it, recording is that when I listen to it again, I hear it differently. Yeah. You know, because I'm yeah. so focused during the conversation. Yes. But then there are other things that I didn't pick up on yep. before. Real yeah. often subtle things, but it's always, you know, fascinating part about just us listening to each other. It's like, it just reminds me that what I think mm-hmm. I'm hearing in the moment isn't exactly what I think I'm hearing. Right, right. Yeah. It's like reading, you know, a great book that you read before and you say, oh, ha. I didn't even, I didn't even hear that at the time. I didn't see that at the time. I mean, and photos are the same way, right? You know, sometimes I was, um, I was talking with a group of students and showing them um, photos and interviews I'd done for the first book. And, you know, and then they brought out stuff that I hadn't even seen. Mm-hmm. And it was so great to have them because they were approaching it from a different perspective and they found something else in that photo that I hadn't seen before. And I just thought that was wonderful. You know, to be able to share it and talk about it and, and run it through these different perspectives. So tell me about the, the photographic process. So you sit down, you interview them, and say you have time afterwards to photograph them. Right. You know, you shift gears. So yeah. how do you approach each person so that each image isn't reliant on just a repeatable look? You know, like, right. well, put a light here, put a photo card right. here, put them right. against a blank wall and make a photograph. I mean, right. each of the images is very distinctive. And they're not, 
there's not this big stylish flourish right. around them, but they're all very unique. So explain to me that, the thought yeah. process behind the, the photographs. Yeah. Well, in the book, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to pull, you know, they could have been environmental portraits, right? That would have told a different story. But mm-hmm. I decided I wanted to sort of, you know, again, make this sort of person to person and strip away as much of the background as I could. So that you're really just focusing on the individual. And so... For the most part, it's a dark background of some sort. You know, when I traveled, I had a black cloth that I brought with me or sometimes a gray one. Sometimes that varied, but, you know, just to kind of make it very simple, very easy to focus on the person themselves. But then you want to get, you know, it's, I'm talking to the person and I'm trying to, again, have them be themselves as much as possible, their authentic self. And so, you may as much as they'll share with somebody they don't know super well, but, you know, so sort of, have them be comfortable, have them be talking, have them be in their space, you know, in a way that that seemed like them. So it's not the same. It didn't matter. Sometimes I would go in, you know, often I would go in with sort of an idea like, you know, let me try this. Let me, these angles, you know, little body, little close in, mm-hmm. you know, sort of the general stuff. But again, you're responding to the person in front of you when you're there. And there's very much in the moment trying to figure out, hmm, you know, how do I show that? And like, like the John Lewis photo that is um, where his eyes are closed. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, that is, I think it's my favorite of the whole collection. It was in his office. You know, we had the interview and then I was doing this and you, you don't have a lot of time. And, you know, I'm sure he had a zillion other incredibly pressing things to do that day. But he was going back and he was talking about these experiences that were, you know, horrific. You know, being beaten on the Freedom Rides and just just horrible stuff. And then, you know, how he came out of it and, and you could just, you know, his eyes, which were sort of tired and they would sort of flutter closed and then, you know, just pause for a second there. And so I, and for me, he's got that deep crease down the middle of his, between his uh, eyebrows. And so I just felt like as he was going back into his memory, you almost are pulled into the vortex of that memory, right? You're down Mm -hmm. that you're into that worry, you're back in those thoughts and those experiences. And so that, that seemed like, for me, that was a very powerful image of him. Because that was, I didn't say, oh, I'm going to go in and get him with his eyes closed. But that was responding to what yeah. I saw in front of me, and the emotion of it, and trying to convey that through the photo. When I do a portrait session, sometimes it's very difficult for me to get out of my own head. Mm. And sometimes it's, it's like I am, when it doesn't work for me, is when I am trying to get the person to do something. Not so much in terms of posing, right. but I want them to give me something. And yeah. it really only works when I let that agenda go and yeah. just see what the person is willing to give to me. Right, And I think that that results in a much different interaction between the two of us, where yeah. I'm still in control and I can sort of give direction. Right. But there's no singular way for me to get there. Right. So what are the things that yeah. you have to do, not with your camera, not with your subject, that you have to do with yourself to get into the right mindset where right. you can elicit something between the interaction between the two of you to get a, a good photograph. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, it's funny. I was interviewing a basketball player once, Elena Beard, who was mm-hmm. a star at Duke. And then she went to the Washington Mystics and she was just saying, you know, she was such an intense person and she would go in with exactly what you were saying, sort of that, this is the way to do it. And this is the plan. And she said, one of the best pieces of advice she got from a coach was just hold on loosely. Like, you know, 
be there, have a plan, you know, bring your intensity, but you've got to react to the moment. You've got to be in the moment and you've got to take, it's a back and forth Mm -hmm. with the people around you with, and so it's the same thing here. You go in and you're, you know, as you said, I'm so tired after them too, after the interviews and after the photos, because you're just, your whole self is there and you're alive, completely alive and trying to have all your sensors up and really understand this person, really meet them and see them for who they are. So I think it's the same or similar um, or analogous to when you're doing the interviews where you are just trying to get the person a place where they're themselves. Yeah. I, I'm not overly saying I have to have this angle of your face, you know, oh, hold it right there. Hold it. Like, we don't do a lot of that. You know, it's more interactive and we're talking and we're thinking or, or laughing or something where they're themselves where they sit like themselves or they move like themselves or whatever it is that, that they come to a position of sort of just comfortably inhabiting and kind of forget about me just snapping away. You know, I think that works best to me. I end up with the best photos then as opposed to when I'm overly worried about the angle and the light, how it's hitting them and this, you know, that's secondary. Yeah. I've conducted hundreds of interviews and people are asking, asking me like, who was the most difficult, blah, blah, blah. And it's never been anything like that. There's been the issue. The biggest issue is for me is that I'm so intimidated by the people because of who they are to me. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Right. And right. I'm wondering, do you have a, a, a similar story of one of the people that you photographed? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Um, <laughs> it was a little intimidating photographing Pete Souza because he's a photographer. Oh. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and a really, really good one. So that was sort of like, oh my gosh, who am I to like tell this person mm-hmm. how to move? You know. So there was a little of that. I mean, it's funny because I think with any of these people, well, you know, some of them are incredibly well known and, you know, Harry Belafonte or John Lewis. I mean, these are like heroes, heroes of mine, heroes of many of ours. And so on the one hand, you could be sort of flummoxed by that. But on the other hand, you know, as is the case when you sit down to talk with anybody, whether it's a person next to you on the bus or whether it's somebody, you know, who's famous you're going to meet, it's, you know, there's that moment of sort of, you know, oh my goodness. And then, and then you're just two people talking. Like, it's not that, yeah. you know, you're just two people talking. And it's, so that kind of, you know, it fades after. I mean, I do remember actually after I left John Lewis's office, I think I just sort of went, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and then and, and this, one of the people who works in the office is like, I know, I feel that every day. <laughs> okay, good, it's not just me. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, I mean, of course. And, and then to want to tell their story well and to not mess it up mm. or, you know, do justice to these people who are phenomenal. I mean, Marion Wright Edelman, like all these people who are just phenomenal. You, you want to, you want to do them justice. And so that's why you, know, you work like a maniac to try to get it right. Yeah. And I don't, you know, don't know if you do, but. Yeah. Cause it's, it's quite, cause some of the people in the book are already iconic and some of these people may eventually be considered iconic. They may be well right. on their way, you know, given the progression of, of, of time, you can never know. But, right. but, but as always, you have to come down to that sort of common thing. It's like, they're just another human right. being. They're flesh right. and blood, just like me. They were right. born and they're going to die. They eat, they sleep. You know, they're no different for me other than the circumstances of their life and the choices that they've made. Mm-hmm. So I think mm-hmm. you always have to sort of come, come back to that, whether you're interviewing someone for a written article or making their, their photograph. Right. But, yeah. you know, we're, we're all, you know, we're all sort of conditioned to think of us in terms of ranking, of importance, of, yeah. 
right. all those things. Right. And w- with with politicians, you know, because they're they're so used to being uh, having a certain level of control of the dialogue. Mm-hmm. How are they to the photograph in comparison to other people? Because all of these people, like I said before, they often have agendas. Right? Mm-hmm. But it seems that yeah. politicians are very adept at, yeah. you know, you know, moving to the side and, and giving you just exactly what you want. Right. And uh, I've not photographed or interviewed many politicians just because I don't think my skill set is up to it. Uh-huh. But I'm wondering what your experience is, um, not just with this book, but with other work that you've done. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think that they're very adept adept at speaking and saying what they want to come across. But, and this goes not just for politicians, but for other people too. And, you know, some of the icons in the book, I think they're also people who often really care about something. Mm -hmm. And so they're, you know, they can geek out on something just like anybody else, right? Like we all have that thing that we're just love to talk about or that we're so excited. And so it's kind of just beating them there. And sometimes, you know, I, I sort of, you know, and this, again, this goes for that type of interview as well as other ones. You just, I think you just don't approach it necessarily from an efficiency point of view. You're not like, oh, I, and again, what you were saying about the photos, I need this out of it. You just go and listen and you listen really hard. And then you try to find, you could tell when someone's really excited about something when they're talking, you know, that's the, and it's not necessarily all their talking points, but maybe there's something that they really, really care about. And so if you can kind of get them talking on that and then ask them questions that really get to why they care about it and Mm -hmm. why they decided to do something in the first place and something that makes it personal to them, then you really get in there and then you're going to really get a conversation going and not just a speech delivered. You spoke earlier about your first book where you traveled across the country photographing people. I think that's really a a wonderful way of getting to know a real cross section of the people yeah. that make up. And, you know, like you said, you have an opportunity to, to hear them in their own voice and see them in their own circumstances, not through the filter of television. Right. Yeah. And I'm wondering what you learned from that experience as an interview and a photographer that directly helped with the work that you did for this latest book. Yeah. And I think that it probably also goes to the point about whether you are intimidated by somebody or not. I think, you know, the more people you speak to from different backgrounds and different, you know, we all have that sort of moment where we think we might know something, something about somebody or we might know who they are, you know, and then you speak to them and often you're wrong. And so, you know, I think like the people, it was just such a beautiful experience because the people were, I mean, it was such a great variety of people and I didn't curate it. So the idea was, I, I would choose one person in each state and I took, I took iconic American names, right? So Marilyn right. Monroe, whatever. And so, but it was just that person. So I didn't know them. I just, you know, I mean, maybe in some cases like Edgar Allan Poe in Oklahoma, it was Comanche, Oklahoma. And I thought, well, that sounds like a cool place. Like, let's just go there just because it sounded like an interesting place. But other than that, I didn't know anything about them. And so just going there and then having to kind of think on your feet, get to know them well, you know, you don't have any context. Neither of you does. So it's like two, you know, people circling each other. It was like a domestic exchange program because we're both like, whoa, who's this person? And, you know, I interviewed one guy, um, Pastor Paul Revere, who is basically a separatist living out in rural Oregon. You know, he and his family, I guess they had been shown off their land by the feds sort of like a Waco situation that didn't go violent, thankfully. But so they were, you know, living in what they called the embassy of heaven, not in the U.S. They didn't consider themselves in the U.S. They sort of seceded. 
I mean, it's fascinating. And they're living on these gutted school buses together. And, you know, at first I thought, well, do I need to be worried or not? And, you know, I, they invited me for dinner and I stayed on with them and with the Psalm ministry and we're having, you know, rice and beans and Bible jokes on the, you know, it was just like, just crazy, just really, you know, wonderful experience, but just human to human, people to people. And it's just so interesting that you really do find the areas of overlap, mm-hmm. you know, and they really are bigger than not, right? You know, they, they, we have much more in common and it's, it seems so obvious, but I don't, we don't act that way yeah. a lot of the time. And so I think that, you know, getting, getting to meet people from very different backgrounds and spend time with them really helps just see everybody that way. Yeah. You said er- er- earlier that this work, that either, either that you hope or that for yourself, that this book makes you hopeful. And that you hope yeah. that, that that's what, when people read that they get that. Yeah, right. So why is that important to you? Why is it important? Well, personally, it's important because, you know, I mean, I think that we all feel, I think we all feel that we want the world to be better. We don't want as much, you know, we don't want a lot of the things that are happening in the world to happen. You know, I have two kids, you know, I want them to see a world that is safer and that exists after 20 years or 50 years, whatever it is, you know, I think that, you know, there's just a lot of problems. And I, I think that I need to believe that we can do something to make them better. I mean, if you don't believe you can, can make anything better, then you just give up. Right. Yeah. And what's the, po- you know, you know, you can go down writing sort of like, it's like expression in, in sports. You just leave it all on the field. You know, this is it. So you might as well do something useful. And I think that, you know, I think when you see people, when you're around people that do make those sacrifices or just those decisions to just do something instead of complaining, then it's, you know, it, it gives you that little kick to, hey, okay, you know what? That's not that hard. I could do that. Or maybe I don't do that. That's not my sphere, but I could do this, you know, or, hey, I already am doing this and it's doing this good thing. Maybe I could do one more, you know, so something like that to just, and it can get better, you know, but it only gets better if people, you know, just make it get better. If yeah. they push, if they show up, whatever it is, like, you know, you can't be passive. I, my kids are sick of hearing it, but, you know, I heard this, this little phrase a little while ago and I can't stop saying it, but, you know, a comfort zone is a beautiful place, but nothing ever grows there. Right. Yeah. Oof. Right. We all love that. And of course, you know, we all need our comfort zone sometimes, but you can't just kind of give into it. Yeah. You got to keep pushing. It's, but it's also your responsibility to do that. And so, you know, so hearing these stories, seeing these examples, you know, just remind us that, A, you can do it. And as you said before, these are regular people. Everyone starts as, okay, some of these people have become icons, but they didn't start that way. Mm-hmm. They just started as a kid who heard someone speak on the radio and it spoke to them and they decided to show up and then they decided to show up again, you know, and you know, and then it became a pattern of that. And so that's all it is. It's just a series of decisions and you just have to do it. Yeah. And it's worth it. I mean, that's the, that's the main message. It's worth it because it does work sometimes, not always, but you might as well go down trying. Yeah. And then as John Lewis says, you know, those are the moments you feel alive. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You feel free. Yeah. Right. And you feel connected to other people. You know, you feel like that's, that's the point. Mm-hmm. That's why we're here. 
Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Well, that's tricky. Can I give two? I'll give two. Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Well, one who I just greatly admire, and I'm sure people already know, is Platon. Mm -hmm. I just love, I mean, I just love, you talk about bringing out the individual. I just love it. And I just think he, he, I I don't know him, but he must have an incredible gift of talking with people in order to bring out that person. I mean, yeah. yeah. And just gorgeous, you know, technically just unbelievably gorgeous. Um, I also have um, another photographer named Alan Chin, who is someone I've known for many years. And he is just, just another great story about someone who just going out and trying something. So he, he studied photography in college and he's in New York and he, you know, was just trying to make a living as a photographer in New York City, which is really hard anywhere and New York City, L.A., I'm sure everywhere. And, you know, I think for a while he was like listing the police scanners and going to be like trying to make it to the scene of an accident to get some photos there. Just sort of like not what he wanted to be doing. And then, you know, the war broke out, you know, Bosnia. And he just decided he bought himself a one way ticket. No money, he bought himself a one way ticket and just showed up. And the, um, the day before, the Times photographer had quit. So there he is, ready to work. And then he's sending, he's working for the New York Times, Christian Science Monitor, you know, covering all these war zones. And he's just one of these people, he's a big intellect, and he just loves life, and he's fascinated by things, and so curious. And so he just dives in. And just, you know, embraces it. I remember he came back, his glasses were half shattered. (laughs) (laughs) But he's like, he's alive. And he's, and you take the risk and you do something. And he created, I mean, these beautiful photos that captured what was happening over there so that we could see what was going on. Mm -hmm. So people could understand it and understand the import of it, you know, so many comfortable miles away. So that, yeah, he's just, so his work is beautiful and his approach. And he's now working on something called Documenting Detroit. Um, with a bunch of other photographers. So that's, yeah, very cool work. Well, thank you for the recommendations, for your time, and for a wonderful, wonderful book. Yeah, thank you. It's a real pleasure talking. Thanks to KK for sharing her time and story with us. Find out more about her and her work by visiting kkodison.com. You can find her book, Activist, wherever books are sold, but please consider using our Amazon affiliate link as it helps to support the show. You can also support the show by writing a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And even better, if you really enjoy an episode, spread the word via an email to a friend, a post on your social networks, or word of mouth. It makes all the difference. And make sure to check out our YouTube channel where I offer comments on photography submitted by TCF listeners who contribute to the Candid Frame Flickr poll. Check out the TCF Flickr poll and our YouTube channel by clicking on the link in the show notes and the website. My latest book, Making Photographs, Developing a Personal Visual Workflow, is now available. You can purchase it today and receive 40% off the list price when you order it from the Rocky Nook website. Use the promo code Pirello40 at checkout to take advantage of the discount. And you can also receive three free copies of my previously published ebooks by signing up for the Candid Frame mailing list, where I share thoughts about life, photography, and keep you updated on TCF events. And remember, you can support the show by contributing to our Patreon effort or donating through PayPal. Thanks to Christian Knobloch, 
Jeffrey Nisler, Derek Hayes, Morna Hollister, and Lon Smith for their recent contributions. It helps and it's making a big difference. Thank you. And thank you to the many people who have written reviews about the show, including Laurent from Canada, Faisal91 from Thailand, and Flogger from the UK. Now, not all episodes may be available on your podcaster app of choice. So to download, listen, and share any and all episodes of The Candid Frame, download the TCF app for Apple iOS and Android. And because of your support, it's free. The Candor Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.